Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome in to the Friday, October 4th edition of the Jeff Andreas Show. And of course, thanks so much as always for lending your ears to hear me. Greatly appreciate you and I hope you know that when I say that, I 100% mean it. I got what I think is a solid show lined up for you all today. In about 10 minutes' time, I'll be talking about the dangers of men drinking prior to conception. Yes, a study was released yesterday that says there are some risks associated with men who have a few drinks before getting someone pregnant, so I will let you know a little bit more about that in about 10 minutes' time. In the back half of today's program, I'll be chatting with Dr. Gord Lovegrove from the University of BC about BC highways. This chat comes on the heels of Ontario raising the speed limits on a number of its highways highways from 100 kilometers an hour to 110k an hour that's being done on a trial basis and one thought is that many vehicles are already going 10 and 20k above the speed limit and this move will help increase safety by speeding up the slower cars well about five years ago a similar thing took place here in bc and gord lovegrove is a civil engineer and has collected some data on what exactly the impact has been here in bc and maybe we can get a rough idea of what ontarians are in four. And to end off today's show, I am bringing back Tim McLeod from Tronquille Farm Fresh as they get set to offer a new show for Kamloopsians to check out later this month, The Cooney Papers. What is it? Why is it something that you may want to head down and see? Of course, it is October and getting closer to Halloween. Will this show be scary for that kind of theme for this month? Well, stay tuned for the end of the program to get a little tease of what The Cooney Papers is all about. But to begin today's show, Clean Energy Canada has produced a new report entitled The Fast Lane. It looks at Canada's clean energy sector and talks about why it is in for a rapid boost here in the coming years. Here to talk about this is the organization's senior policy advisor, Sarah Petrovin. Sarah, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So let's just start by talking a little bit about the clean energy sector. Many people fear that Canada's economy is sort of in for a rapid decline, especially when it comes to the things like the oil fields and people who rely on that fossil fuel industry. But Clean Energy Canada is saying that there will be many opportunities soon on the way when it comes to clean energy. So what is it exactly that you guys are projecting at this point when it comes to job creation specifically in this sector? So we we already know that there are 300,000 clean energy jobs today, and our new report shows that by 2030, that number is going to grow to well over half a million. But what our report also shows is that this will be a transition that happens over a period of time. So it doesn't result in the uh, rapid decline or falling uh, off a cliff, if you will, of fossil fuel jobs, but rather a transition that as fossil fuel jobs decline, clean energy jobs will go will grow rapidly at a rate of nearly four times faster than the Canadian average over the next decade. So given that answer, I mean, this report, like you had said, was call, is called the, the fast lane, and there's a reason for that. So maybe just kind of give a little bit of a reason behind the title of this report. As you had mentioned, um, you know, the fossil fuels are maybe going to be a little bit slower, where the, the, green, the green energy sector is going to be quicker. So can you just explain the fast lane and what that exactly means? Yeah, absolutely. So because the clean energy sector is going to grow nearly four times faster than the Canadian average over the next decade, we really feel like the clean energy sector in Canada is the fast lane. You know, when you're driving down a highway, you're going to talk about highways on your show today. When you're driving down a highway, there's the fast lane and, you know, there's the slow lane. And, you know, we really feel like in that metaphor, uh, clean energy is the fast lane for Canada. 
Do you know how, how big of an impact this could have on those who will potentially be losing a job as the economy shifts to that greener future? Like, do, can you kind of speak to how many job losses there will be that will be absorbed by the clean energy sector? Is this something that is being looked at at this point in time to sort of take the people that are fearful of, of maybe of that transitioning economy and what it might mean to the, the, the skills that they have now? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, transition is a word that is just so important because I think when everybody hears about the notion of clean energy jobs on the on the increase, you know, and potentially, you know, 50,000 uh, jobs likely to be lost in the fossil fuel sector over the next decade, that really scares uh, a lot of people. But, you know, those 50,000 jobs uh, are that are going to be lost in the fossil fuel sector are due to a number of different factors. It's not uh, necessarily or even uh, a correlation between the creation of clean energy jobs. It's about a lot of things, including a massive increase in automation in the fossil fuel sector. So, you know, the good news is, is about clean energy sector jobs and particularly how we've constructed our model is that, uh, you know, these are jobs uh, that are available in every region of the country and uh, at every skill level. So this is, you know, white collar jobs, blue collar jobs, you know, purple, orange, green collar jobs, uh, if you will. You know, think about it this way. If you are manufacturing buses, uh, you know, Canada uh, has uh, several facilities that do so in this country, you know, you will still need to manufacture buses, whether those buses be run on fossil fuels as they are now or uh, as they transition to electric over time. Uh, we have some great uh, uh, electric bus manufacturers in Canada. One of them is in BC. We've got ones in uh, Quebec as well. Uh, so, you know, some of the jobs will require retraining, but a lot of the skills are directly applicable uh, to the clean energy sector. So essentially, I guess people who, who maybe have a, a bit of a fear about what the future might hold, uh, you're basically saying, you know, there's going to be an opportunity for the skills you currently have to be transitioned to another or not even necessarily another industry. It just might be another way of looking at the same thing you're already doing. Absolutely. Awesome. So obviously people should be aware of that fact because, uh, you know, there's nothing... <laughs> Nothing good about going to work and fearing that you might not have a, a job in the near future. Um, I guess what, what needs to happen over the next 10 years to ensure that that investment in the industry is made? Like, is there any worry that this prediction can or won't come true for any particular reason? Absolutely. So we modeled this prediction based on uh, climate action policies that were currently in place in this country as of January 1st. Um, as soon as you start to remove some of those policies, uh, you will see uh, a decline in these sorts of productions. You know, the growth of the clean energy sector and the job opportunity uh, that we're showcasing is directly tied to government policy. So if that changes, uh, then you won't see uh, perhaps as much opportunity uh, for uh, economic growth and for job creation in this country in the future. Uh, here with Clean Energy Canada Senior Policy Advisor Sarah Petrovin. So, given that fact, um, I don't want to get into the whole politics around this whole se um, conversation, but just I guess that does mean that this federal election could have a pretty big impact on kind of what you guys are predicting here for the next decade or so. Yes, that is correct. All right, so uh, definitely something to keep in mind here when 
when we are voting uh, on October 21. Um, now, the clean energies sector contribution to GDP is on track to grow by 3.4% a year between now and 2030, according to your report. Um, is that at all a conservative prediction or is that, uh, you know, maybe a little bit generous or, or kind of how do you guys view that number moving forward? Is that something that you guys are really confident in or do you think it could even grow faster than that? Uh, you know, models are interesting in that you build economic models based on a number of assumptions and you build those assumptions based on, you know, your best predictions that you have at the time. I would say that, you know, while it's not an extremely conservative number, it's not an overly, um, it's not an over, it's not an overstated number. It's not too aggressive. So, you know, uh, you in fact could see this percentage increase uh, if you, for example, saw uh, a doubling down on policies that would help unlock opportunity in the clean energy sector. Conversely, you may see that number go down. Um, if all of a sudden, you know, there was to be an elimination of policies that enabled these, uh, this investment growth and these jobs to be created in the future. Hmm. Um, so definitely some uh, interesting numbers to kind of break down. But uh, one thing I do want to get a little more detail on, because, uh, you know, this is something that maybe people think about a lot in terms of the transition to a more green e economy. But what exactly does that mean? I mean, you, you mentioned some of the potential opportunities that exist when it comes to job creation, things like electric vehicles. Um, you know, I had a gentleman on the show not too long ago who was talking about uh, having machines that would suck carbon out of household appliances like furnaces and turning that into useful products. But I mean, what, what kind of other examples could you give me in terms of what a clean, uh, cleaner energy economy means? What kind of other job opportunities are there? What sort of creation is out there that maybe people don't necessarily think about? Yeah, so, you know, one thing that people don't necessarily always think about when we talk about what a clean energy future looks like is it's not only powering things with more energy and more energy that's clean, but it's also about wasting less energy. Um, you know, so that's everything from uh, perhaps, you know, installing some better windows on your house or having a more energy efficient uh, furnace. Those all have... Uh, energy efficiency retrofits and audits and all of the sorts of things that we do to our homes uh, and our buildings uh, have a huge amount of jobs behind them. Um, and those jobs uh, we also considered in our modeling and in our report. So, you know, if you're installing uh, windows that help a home be more energy efficient, you know, that is a clean energy job as well. Awesome, Sarah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. I really appreciate it. And uh, definitely some interesting information to look at here over the next uh, 10 years. Thank you so much. Awesome. That was Sarah Petrovin with Clean Energy Canada. Coming up after the break, men apparently should be thinking twice about having a drink or soon before planning to have a baby. I'll let you know more about that after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show on what is October the 4th. And of course, it is a Friday. Yes, it is the end of the work week, and I'm sure many people are looking to punch out for the day and 
Maybe have a drink or two to celebrate the fact that you made it through another week. I'm often guilty of doing just that myself. And uh, you know what? When you think about it, it's a little bit sad just how many in Western society actually feel that way when it comes to alcohol consumption. It's like a, a way to celebrate the fact that I have two days off. It's a little sad. But it's the way it is. And uh, you know what? That's probably not going to change anytime soon. It's a terrible way to segue into what I wanted to discuss here. But uh, yeah, I just thought I had an interesting read the other day, yesterday to be specific. A new study came out this week talking about the effects of men who drink prior to conception. Of course, we all know about the dangers that come from women who drink while pregnant. It's long been linked to things like uh, congenital defects and developmental problems in newborns. But apparently, studies now show that men should quit drinking three months before they're thinking about getting pregnant with their partners. Why? Well, this study has found a link between a baby's congenital heart defects and their prospective parents drinking before conception. Compared to non-drinkers, fathers who drank during the three months before conception were 44% more likely to have babies born with congenital heart disease. That's just for casual drinkers, but if you have more, well, if prospective dads were binge drinkers, which is defined as downing five or more drinks per session, there was a 52% higher likelihood that their child would be born with a congenital heart defect. Now, existing data on paternal effects of alcohol abuse during the preconceptual period and at the time of conception also offer some support for paternal influence on birth weight and some evidence of mild cognitive impairments results from animal data. I don't know how accurate you can be with animal data, but they have demonstrated decreased litter size, increased prevalence of low birth weight fetuses, and mixed data on risk of malformations. So there you go. There is some risk associated with men who drink, in particular men who quote-unquote binge drink, prior to getting someone pregnant. Now, just for reference, this study was published uh, actually just yesterday in the European Journal of Preventative Cardiology and can only show an association between drinking and birth defects, not a causation. So... Maybe just take the data for what it is. Let's not read too, too much into it because, uh, you know, it is what it is. It's a study that looks at the possibility of a link between drinking prior to conception and, uh, you know, just what happens to, to newborns who are exposed, if you will, to that behavior during those three months before they are conceived. And we're talking about men, of course. As we all know, as I mentioned at the top, we all know about the dangers of women who drink while pregnant. That is not new. But this, this is new data for me. I'm sure it's new data for many of you as well. One thing that uh, I'm sure some out there might be thinking is, uh, without a little booze, I may not be around. Which I can pretty much guarantee is true in many of your cases. Sorry to say it, but you, you probably know who you are. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure that wasn't the case for me. My parents tell me I was playing. I believe them. 
But alcohol, of course, has played a role in creating many humans throughout the course of human history. And I am sure, now knowing this study exists, I may look back at some of my friends and say, I bet your dad was drinking before you were conceived. <laughs> it's probably not nice. Maybe I won't tell them that. But I can think it. I can definitely think it. So, if you are, of course, thinking about having a kid here in the near future, maybe you should think twice about having that drink tonight. But best of luck, because I can tell you right now, when I throw on the hockey game tonight, or tomorrow, or the football game on Sunday, or head out to a restaurant at some point this weekend, or drive down the road and see a billboard, or flip through a magazine and see some of the full-page ads that are taken out, or maybe I'm just walking around downtown and I see a liquor store nearby, because I'll tell you what, there's a few of them. It's going to be pretty hard to say no, because I, like many others, enjoy a nice, tasty beverage on a Friday, Saturday night. Although, to be fair, I don't know if the day really matters. I, I, I pretty much enjoy those beverages on uh, any night, just so long as I'm allowed to uh, maybe sleep in a little bit more the next day. I guess that falls into the binge drinking category. If I'm going to have five or more, then maybe I'll, uh, I'll make sure it's on a Friday or Saturday night. So like I said, good luck. Here you go. Check this out. See if this helps. Beer, 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 bubble, beer, 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 oh, when we get together, just me and all the lads, everyone remembers all the fun we had. Dilly, dilly. Dilly, dilly. What's that? What's that? Welcome to the Society of Uncompromising Men. Welcome to the Wiserhood. Captain. 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 Meister's 56 herbs and spices bring out the best in your beer. World's most refreshing beer. My name is Joe, and I am Canadian. I don't always drink beer, but when I do, I prefer those sakis. Stay thirsty, my friends. That was like nine different commercials, and I'm sure you can guess what most of those were without even hearing the brand name, although there was a lot of brands in there. So for those looking to avoid drinking before trying to conceive, best of luck because the marketing ain't gonna stop. And if you're like me, the temptation definitely is not going anywhere. So best of luck, gentlemen out there who are trying to have a kid or maybe just trying not to drink. I have not helped your cause in any way over the course of the last six and a half minutes here. But that does not change the fact that I'm rooting for you. So good luck. Coming up after the break, I'll be talking about highway traffic speeds as they have raised some limits in Ontario. So with that in mind, I take a look at what has happened here since speeds have increased on BC highways, which was done about five years ago. There's now quite a bit of data over that five-year period about how things are in terms of have they gotten safer? Have they gotten worse? Well, we'll be talking more about that here shortly, so stay tuned for that. Now let's hurry up and get to that commercial break so I can enjoy this. to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back into the Jeff Andreas Show here on a lovely Friday in Kamloops. 
Last month, Ontario moved ahead with increasing speeds on three highways in the province on a trial basis. Highway 402 from London to Sarnia, the QEW from St. Catharines to Hamilton, and Highway 417 from Ottawa to the Quebec border. It has increased the speeds on those sections from 100 kilometers an hour to 110. As they do that... I thought it would be a good idea to talk about the highway speeds here in B.C. And one civil engineer in the province says raising the speed limits can pose some serious safety risks. Here to talk about that is Dr. Gord Lovegrove, Associate Professor at the School of Engineering and Faculty of Applied Science at UBC. Gord, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. So it's been about five years, I guess, right, since the Coca-Cola went from 110 to 120. Um, I guess over the course of that time, what what have you noticed in terms of safety? Because obviously they're looking at going from 100 to 110, so that's sort of why this whole discussion was brought up. But looking at five years of data here in BC, I guess, so what have you noticed in terms of those safety measures that were put in place? I guess it was thought that going up to 120 would somehow make things safer, but from what I understand, that's not necessarily the case. Well, not in all cases. I mean, the original objectives, that's how you define success or failure, were that they wanted to reduce the differential speeds, which is the, the difference between the highest moving vehicle and the, and the, and the, and the lowest speed moving vehicle. So um, they wanted, to, it, which can in itself cause problems, especially if a slow moving vehicle is in the wrong lane, somebody's coming up behind them and they end up weaving in and out of traffic, right? So, so that was the intent in BC to improve safety by reducing differential speeds. In Ontario, I don't know what their uh, objectives are, to improve safety, I, I know that mobility is always the trade-off. If you increase speed, that you get where you're going faster by probably only a few minutes, though. Um, so without knowing their details, all I can say is the human body can only take so much uh, energy uh, when there's a crash. And at higher speeds, you have less time to react, less distance to uh, move over or, or avoid a collision and less notice. And, you know, what is the highway designed for? What speed was it originally designed for? It just raises a number of concerns that the engineers in Ontario will no doubt have to look at and consider in, in, in doing what they've done. And, and I can guarantee you, though, one thing for sure, they will be monitoring what's going on. And we here, when we monitored it, we saw a 20% rise in fatal crashes not just the severity but the actual number of fatal crashes even adjusting for all the usual confounding factors and following you know recognized standardized methodology you know peer-reviewed journal methodologies we saw a significant increase and that's why the minister after our paper was published was saying well i guess on some sections we're going to put it back down now, when you're talking about an increase in, in fatal collisions, a 20% increase, that's pretty significant. But uh, I guess, does that correlate with the number of overall collisions that were occurring? Or is it just when that, it comes to fatalities? And, and that's the key question, Jeff. You're absolutely right. So when you look at um, overall, on, and when I say overall, I'm talking about all highway segments across the province of BC, highways, uh, similar design, uh, you know, highway class roads, um, we saw a increase in general of under 10% in fatal crashes. So we weren't looking at total collisions. We were looking at fatal collisions. Mm -hmm. So we, we could, we, I, you know, I, Actually, you can pull those stats as well. I just don't have them in front of me. But the, the most severe are the ones that, you know, cost lives. And they're often uh, the most uh, 
traumatic besides the lives, economically speaking, uh, lost productivity, etc. And so that was our metric because that's what one of the measures of success was to improve safety and, and reduce fatal crashes. That failed miserably on the segments that we saw. But with the, the overall increase in background of 10%, yes, we accounted for that in, in our statistics, in our analysis, and we still saw a significant increase in fatal crashes. Uh, now, I guess part of the idea, too, when, when raising the speed limit uh, from 110 to 120 was that you know, a lot of people were already driving 10 kilometers over the speed limit, so it was felt that if you raised it to 120, those people will continue at that same rate of speed. Um, I think that's not the correct engineering term, but um, at, the, at, the okay. sa- at the same speed at 120, but that wasn't the case. I mean, once you raise it, then people tend to just go 10K over the speed limit as it stands, right? So, I mean, I guess when you look at that, it doesn't really have the desired effect in terms of speeding or, or speeding up the slow drivers because it also just speeds up the fast drivers as well. And, and you're, you're bang on the, the, the evidence, uh, scientific research in other highways where speed limits have been raised, generally speaking, the folks at the top end of the speed charts don't go the full 10K faster, but here they did. And the ones at the bottom of the charts generally do go almost the full 10K, and, and, and the exact opposite happened in a lot of cases. Um, I, I just got to clarify this, too, because I said rate of speed, and I have an engineering friend who, I, every time I've said it, it drives him nuts. What's the actual term that I should be using? <laughs> Speed is a rate in itself. So the, the rate of movement, the, the rate of uh, distance traveled per unit time, but speed in itself is a rate, Jeff. So you can just say speed. Okay, perfect. Because, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to turn off any engineering audience that I have, so I got to make sure I get that right. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> I'm here with uh, Dr. Gord Lovegrove, Associate Professor uh, at UBC. So I guess uh, when we're looking at this, uh, you know, five years later, um, I mean, you could say it probably hasn't necessarily had the desired effect, but, I mean, it comes to the point now, it's been five years, they're probably not going to revert back to what things were before. Um, so I guess w- what do you think in terms of when you're looking at um, these kinds of studies like they might be doing in Ottawa and, and sort of examining if the increase of 10K per hour will have the desired effect. I mean, how much time do you think you have before you can really put it back, before you just have totally lost drivers and their behaviors have totally changed? Well, we actually studied that on adjacent segments, and we saw speeds increasing as well. So we looked at speeds, we looked at weather patterns, we looked at alignments, uh, telemetry, the whole, tried, trying to account for all the possible, you know, spillover effects that you've just raised, Jeff, and that's a very good point. And just point, point of order, you know that on many of the segments that were raised in B.C., the Ministry of Transport actually did reduce the speed limits back down the 10k they had been raised you know that right mm-hmm. okay, yeah so I'm, I'm pretty new so i'm still kind of learning all the history here that, no no that, that's okay i just want to clarify that for the record but because i thought maybe you were talking about ontario and I, I i don't know enough about that other than they're looking at it and, and raising them on some segments so but here yeah we we really had some concerns about that but but i think your earlier comment about the fact that people just automatically drive 10k over is the bigger issue here. People trust engineers for the design of the road. Well, if the road isn't designed for the higher speed, watch out. So this is the other factor engineers have to take into account. We are not designing autobahns here. 
Mm-hmm. We're designing mountainous highways, a lot hillier, curvilinear than you see in Germany and, and places where the Autobahn exists. And and I guess when it comes to winter driving as well, I mean, obviously that's sort of one of the bigger issues here is when we're looking at, you know, now that it's it's October and, you know, we're starting to see a lot more incidents of, of snow on the Coca Hollow, which always is, of course, posing a risk to, to everyone who's driving those sections and the, the fact that weather can change on a dime, it seems like. Um, I guess, is this just one more factor to keep in mind when you're looking at, at the, the speed limits uh, when factoring these in? Is that, you know, not necessarily people are going to drive differently in the winter, although you would hope they would, but that's not always the case. And, and if you are increasing the speed, uh, you know, it, it could have a, a fatal, a more fatal result, especially when you're looking at those winter months. That, that is a very interesting question. We, we did actually uh, correlate with all the weather stations throughout the province adjacent to these highways as well to make sure we were normalizing the data in that regard. And, and, and I'll tell you why it's, it's even more important, Jeff. It's not just about the winter. I mean, right now, with climate change happening, we've got torrential downpours happening. We have rainstorms in the middle of summer. The August long weekend a year ago, uh, we had a torrential downpour that lasted less than half an hour and a near, well, actually, according to the stats I'm aware of, a, a near fatal uh, crash because the ditches on the Coquihalla, the connector, were overwhelmed with ter- this torrential, something you see in Hawaii, not Canada, and created stri- literally a stream across the highway. Folks coming in on cruise control, coasting on the hill, had no clue what to expect. And that's just simple a highway design that was not built for climate change. We need to reassess our highways and consider training drivers to beware of climate change issues, not just in the winter, which, by the way, has hit a week earlier this year here on the Coquihalla, as we saw this year. It even beats the October 1st snow terror deadline, mm-hmm. but even in the summer with torrential downpours. So we do need to consider weather on these very high altitude highways where sudden weather changes happen. Yeah, well, I guess when we're looking at highway speeds, it's not something that uh, is set in stone. It's probably something that needs to be reviewed pretty regularly and, and adjust accordingly, especially given uh, you know your, your your concerns when it comes to climate change. And we don't really know exactly what the weather will be like, uh, you know, let alone next year, about four or five years down the road. It might have to be revisited when looking at limits again. Well, in fact, Jeff, you've just raised what's happening in Europe, and that's called variable speed limits. And they just based on weather and a number of other factors, including whether there's been an incident, a crash. I don't call them accidents anymore because crashes aren't by accident. Typically, they're human error. They should Mm -hmm. be called errors. But they do change the speed limit, and we have it on parts of, uh, I think it's the the sections of the Great Bear Tunnel, uh, of the Coquihalla now, and that, that's where we need to go. We need to have better monitoring, like I said before, not just, uh, you know, every year a group of statistics get measured, but continual 24-7, 365, um, as weather conditions, incidents, uh, and, and microclimates change along the Coquihalla, not to mention wildlife uh, and, and perhaps even, you know, darkness. So it, it, there are so many confounding factors, levels of traffic, volume of traffic. There's just, you, you can keep going, and you've mentioned many of them, Jeff, so, so thank you for that. Well, uh, thanks so much for doing this, Gord. I really appreciate your time and lots, uh, lots of interesting information there to unpack, so I appreciate it. Okay, all the best. Take care. All right, you as well. That was Dr. Gord Lovegrove, Associate Professor, School of Engineering and Faculty of Applied Science at UBC.
Coming up after the break, I'll be chatting with Tim McLeod from Tronquille Farm Fresh as they get set to unveil their latest attraction, the Cooney Papers. What is it? Well, stay tuned to find out. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back here and TGIF here on October 4th. And thanks as always for joining me. Tronquille Farm Fresh is getting ready for its latest attraction, the Cooney Papers. What is it? Well, here to talk about that is Tim McLeod. Tim, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. Good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic. So let's talk about this new addition to the collection of uh, family entertainment activities coming to celebrate the history of the Tronquille on the Lake property. Tell me about the Cooney Papers and, and how does it exactly sort of celebrate uh, that property? Okay, well, Charles and Betsy Cooney were actually the ranchers who came to the property in 1868 and uh, developed uh, what became known as BC's finest ranch and Canada's largest horse herd. So we looked back into history and saw this love story of 51 years and felt it was an amazing story that we needed to tell, and we want to do it in a different way this year. So, I mean, can you tell me a little bit about the significance behind this story? I mean, it sounds like something that obviously you guys are, have put a lot of thought into, and, and it sounds like a story that you guys are obviously very interested in uh, at Tronquille. So, I mean, why is this something that was so interesting to you guys, and do you think it's something that maybe more people should be aware of? Absolutely, Jeff. And what caught our interest was as we started looking at this couple's life and started thinking about what they talked about at the dinner table, we realized it was the history of BC around them and their impact on it. And when they came, we discovered that there was about 700 Europeans in this territory, and they were two of the 700. Mind you, Betsy is actually Métis. Her mom's from the Carrier Nation. And so we looked at that. We started looking at the history of BC. We realized that the first great cattle drives of BC started in Kamloops. And they had this massive cattle herd, and they were involved in that. We learned that uh, 1,200 horses were sent over the Rockies to Calgary, to the Northwest Mounted Police. They were part of that. So the more we looked at our history, the more we saw this couple in the middle of it playing a super active role. So why do you think this is a story that maybe more people aren't aware of? Well, if you're like me, I didn't really know a lot of BC's history in the 1800s. I didn't know how we came into Confederation, believe it or not. And as I started looking into that and looking at the gold rush, uh, we found a letter that was written by Jason Allard in 1929. And he was a personal friend of James Houston who found gold in the Tronquille Creek. And as we read that letter and dug into it and dug into the HPC archives, uh, we discovered that the BC gold rush, to a large extent, started in Tronquille here in Kamloops. Hmm. So a lot of interesting facts that are going to, I guess, be kind of told uh, through this production. Um, uh, g given that, I guess, why do you think it's important for people to come check this out? And obviously, they're not just going to enjoy a show, but they're going to get a, a little bit of a history lesson here as well. Absolutely. It's, it's about telling history in a really fun way, Jeff. So what we're doing is we're combining video with live acting, uh, with narration, and with music. So, for example, one scene has a priest marrying Betsy and Charles. Betsy and Charles are off screen, the priest is on screen. So we have a 37-foot screen that we built, it's curved, it's uh, beautiful, and we'll have multiple projectors. So the whole experience is meant to take history as a docudrama and bring it to life, and we've never done this before. It's hmm, definitely pretty cool. Um, so given the fact that it is October, I know a lot of people might be wondering, you know, is this a halloween theme thing at all? But I, I don't know, is it? I mean, I don't, I don't think it is from what I've been reading, but uh, maybe it has at least a fall theme to it, I don't know. Yeah, it, well, dress warmly. But no, <laughs> there, there is no uh, Halloween theme to it. You will be coming into the tunnels, uh, and the soundtrack is a very haunting soundtrack, but that's as close as we get to Halloween. It's all about their love. Okay, so... 
Not really, but uh, I guess you can still feel a little bit of eeriness to it, given the soundtracks for it. Well, absolutely, and we have to remember that uh, Charles is buried in the graveyard at Tronquille, and that's one of our closing scenes is his wife in the graveyard praying for him uh, as we have uh, one of her grandchildren telling us what happened in that graveyard. Okay, so even though it's not, uh, you know, a spooky theme, I guess there's still the opportunity to kind of, for people who go, to sort of make it their own if they want, given uh, the fact absolutely, that he's there, Absolutely, right? you bet. Perfect. Um, so tell me a little bit about the opportunities that people have to come check this out. It starts in about two weeks. Uh, actually, I think it is two weeks today right on. So, uh, And there's going to be about four weeks of run for the show. So a lot of chances for people to come see this. Absolutely. We're going to be running that uh, throughout uh, weekends. And we're also bringing in matinee performances because we like to attract not just families and millennials, but also seniors. And we've also got it so it's wheelchair accessible. It's the first time we've been able to do that. And we want to make it open and very inclusive to all. And uh, where do people go about booking their, their tickets and things like that? Uh, the best place is to go to uh, tronquillefarmfresh.com and you can buy everything online. You can see what nights are available uh, and come with your friends. Perfect. Um, anything else that you wanted to highlight when it comes to uh, the, the Cooney papers here? I think, Jeff, the most fun part for us has been uh, connecting with people all over the world. So one of our main narrators lives in Ireland. Another one lives in Quebec. Uh, we've got songwriters in Ireland and we've got songwriters in the States that are coming saying, use our music. We love what you're doing. This is amazing. Cool. Very cool that you have that sort of international collaboration. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, well, I have you here. We have a couple minutes left, so I'll ask you about the uh, exit rooms that are still ongoing. I know we chatted about this uh, sure. probably about a month ago now, but it sounds like things are going pretty well. Oh, things are going really well, Jeff. We're having a lot of fun with that. Uh, people are coming from uh, all over. I think last weekend we had uh, Prince George, Vancouver, Kelowna, everywhere. It's really a fun thing, and what I like is seeing people have a good time. That's the best. Yeah, so obviously for people who don't know what an exit room is or an escape room, whatever you wish to call it, um, obviously you're locked in a room, you're trying to get your way out. And for this one, it's a pretty big operation. You had mentioned that's like 20 people or so that would be in a room at one time. That's right. You're 20 people. You may not know everybody, but you will by the end. And you have to collaborate together to move your way from room to room, finding clues and puzzles and solving them to allow you to get to the end to save a Canadian convoy that's in the brink of being destroyed by the German U-boats. Yeah, so the Enigma Women runs for uh, another little while, so there's still quite a bit of opportunity for people to come down and check it out, but it is filling up pretty quick. It's filling up really quickly. Uh, you need to uh, get tickets well in advance, and we'll be rolling it, I think, until November 1st. Um, have you had anyone that's been particular, any groups that have been particularly awesome at this so far? Has anyone kind of impressed you with their well, speeds of getting well, out of there the, yet? The or? game is 60 minutes long. Uh, we had one group that did it in 47. They had a little bit of cheating involved, oh. but uh, friendly cheating. <laughs> uh, the legit people are about 58 minutes and 24 seconds. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And I assume a lot of people who have probably hit the 60 minutes and are still stuck in there. I think those are called epic failures. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's very nice. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming in, Tim. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, definitely some interesting stuff to go check out here over the next uh, six weeks. I guess really so um, yeah take take advantage of it while you can and um, yeah thanks so much for coming in thanks Jeff for having us awesome that was Tim McLeod with uh, Tronquille Farm Fresh talking about their new play the Cooney Papers which starts in I said two weeks time from now so definitely some time to uh, get prepared and check that out and also the uh, Enigma Women X room is going to be on for a little while longer as well so book your tickets for that well that pretty much wraps up my show here today. So I want to thank all my guests one more time for joining me. And of course, more importantly, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here on Monday morning at 9. So enjoy your weekend.